everybody. I'd like to thank you all for coming. My name is Karis Gong, and I'm currently the president of the American Wood Cliosophic Society. As you may know, it's the nation's oldest political, literary, and debating society in the nation. If any of you are interested in joining, please don't hesitate to email for more information. Each year, we sponsor a number of events designed to engage the campus in debate and discussion on a variety of current issues. We believe in the art of discourse as a means to the de development of ideas, and we appreciate the voicing of all opinions. As such, we are pleased to host Mr. Nader tonight. We must note that the views of Mr. Nader do not necessarily reflect the views of Princeton University or Wig Clio. But we are pleased <laughs> But we are pleased that he is joining us to express those views, and we now welcome Carl Mayer, class of nineteen eighty one, to introduce Mr. Mayer, Mr. Nader. Uh, thank you very much. Um, it's actually an uh, overwhelming reception for Mr. Nader uh, and is much appreciated by him. Uh, first of all, uh, it's very difficult to organize such a large event, and uh, Karis Gong and uh, Dean Dunn were instrumental in making this happen, and if we could give them a round of applause, it really took an enormous hard work. A, a couple of housekeeping items. Mr. Nader will uh, answer questions after his his talk. Uh, he was uh, famous when he was uh, here for uh, taking eight courses a semester when uh, most students took four, and they actually gave him a key to the Woodrow Wilson School Library because he was so often in there late at night, and they didn't like him going through the window. So he'll answer he'll answer questions for a very long time if we let him, but we will have to we will have to cut it off at some point. Also. So there will be a book signing by Mr. Nader right after the event across the street at the uh, Triumph Brewery. So uh, mark that on your immediate calendars. Um, it's always uh, pleasantly nostalgic for me to uh, return to uh, Princeton. And it's, um, it's particularly so this evening. Uh, actually, my, um, my father, who's a professor emeritus here, uh, is, uh, is in attendance, and he always reminds me of, of, uh, of a uh, remark that a, a colleague and well-known political theorist made that I think sets the benchmark for all public lectures. Uh, his, the theorist's name was Herbert Marcuse, who actually, I think, talked in this hall once as one of the better-known political philosophers of the 20th century. And what he said was, Anytime there's a public lecture, within the first five minutes, if the lecturer doesn't say something remarkable or important, you have not just the right, but the obligation to leave. <laughs> so I, I believe that Mr. Nader will more than meet that standard uh, this evening. And um, I'll try to meet it in, in a, a couple of minutes by suggesting to you that if, if if, uh, if people uh, in New Jersey and, and at Princeton um, believe that there's no need for more voices and choices in American politics today, you might just consider the following exercise briefly. If you travel up the road just about 40 miles to Newark, you'll find the second most impoverished city in the nation after Cleveland, Ohio. And you'll find many of the 300,000 children in the state of New Jersey who will go to sleep tonight hungry because they're below the federal poverty line in Newark. If you travel 40 miles south, you'll find uh, the city of Camden, 
which has, uh, for its size, it's considered uh, of small cities under 250,000, the poorest city in the nation, poorer than, than cities in Mississippi and Alabama, where there's unemployment rate of 40% where there's a dropout rate in the schools of 40%, where there's no supermarket in the downtown, where there's open-air drug bazaars. And the, the, the two parties that predominate in the nation aren't addressing those issues, and you didn't even hear a mention of, of poverty and these issues in the course of the campaign, except briefly in the primaries. So if you think there's no need for... Uh, uh, other voices and choices. You might, even if you're not concerned about deep poverty in the urban centers in this state and around the country, just travel to any of the 2,000 Superfund sites in New Jersey, the most in the nation. Or check with the EPA. And if you think you're immune from some of these issues, the EPA says that New Jersey is the only state in the nation where every single county does not meet air quality standards. So these are some of the, the, the deep and pressing issues that uh, confront our society and that Mr. Nader has addressed for four decades. And I would, I would uh, not be at all exaggerating to say that he is the living American, the only living, the, the living American who has done the most to work for and achieve concrete solutions to these very pressing social and economic problems for uh, uh, American society. And he is also, uh, I think, someone who honors the tradition of this university that suggests that Princeton, Princetonians should serve in the nation's service. So tonight you'll be able to hear, uh, I think, the only candidate, the only voice this election season that has foursquare stood for peace Foursquare stood for ending the war in Iraq. The only candidate that has consistently opposed the Patriot Act and its overturning of over 100 years of American jurisprudence regarding personal privacy. And the only candidate that has consistently been against these trade deals that ship American jobs overseas, often uh, dooming American workers to compete with workers overseas who receive 20, 30, 40 cents an hour in brutalized conditions. So without uh, further ado, let me present to you Ralph Nader. Thank you very much. Well, it'll happen to you when you come back to Old Nassau, so uh, I want to say a few preliminary remarks. When I was an undergraduate here, and I thank Carl for his comments and Karis uh, for her introduction. Um, when I was an undergraduate here, there, there were two courses that I took uh, that I think in their cumulative effect overshadowed all the other courses. And one was H.H. H. Wilson's course in the politics department, uh, he was uh, giving a course every year called Power, 
and politics in America. Therefore, he was a very controversial figure in the uh, Department of Politics. And it took him a long time to become a full professor. In those days, the mere mention of a normative uh, assignment to corporate power and its influence on politics was considered controversial. This was McCarthy period as well. And the other one was uh, Professor Melvin Tuman, anthropology. And he, and the, uh, and it, and there wasn't a department of anthropology then, just an anthropology course. So what, why am I saying this? Because if you, if you find a course and a, and a faculty member that really gets to your soul and your mind and your heart, uh, stay, stay with them for a while, even after you finish uh, the course. And you've got about 15,000 days or more, a little over 2,000 weeks before you turn 65. And uh, last week went quickly, I'm sure, but you haven't seen anything yet. It's going to go very quickly. And this is the time when you have this, the, the solitude and the environment and the interpersonal conversation uh, to develop a public philosophy. And part of developing a public philosophy is how are you going to spend your time between your private citizen activities, the job, family, etc., and your public citizen duties after you graduate. And to do that, it's a good idea to make that distinction while you're here as an undergraduate. And I know you have service activity in Trenton among poor kids. Uh, we helped start Project 55 here, which places a lot of students in the summer and after they graduate in uh, civic action type organizations around the country. Uh, it's easy to say that you should develop a public uh, philosophy, uh, but the culture we, we, we all grow up in, and especially you, is a very powerful commercial culture. And part of being entwined in a commercial culture is that it entangles you at a low level of sensuality, on the sensuality ladder. And it trivializes you if you're not careful. Here in this audience, they're extremely bright students. And they're also students who get drunk and get in binge drinking, and they misbehave sexually. And you have to decide, why do you live those kinds of lives? What does a society do to you? Uh, this is hardly a cognitive exercise. It's more like Pavlovian specimens, conditioned response. We all grew up corporate, whether we like it or not. This is a corporate-dominated society. Our very views of the society are filtered through corporate prisms. We just see corporate ads all the time without any rebuttal. We see corporate ads defining beauty, corporate ads defining the food they want to sell us, corporate ads that, that define the way we look at cars, uh, the way we look at technology, uh, the way we don't look at, at technology. And, and it spreads throughout the political economy. And when they start at us at two years old and three and four years old, it really gets in our brain. Personally, I grew up during the jukebox era of automotive design when there were all kinds of fins and style. and There's very little attention to engineering integrity, safety, fuel efficiency, pollution control, never talked about. It was style and horsepower and how much you got for your trade-in car. And there was nothing here on campus, zero, even in the engineering and physics departments, that had anything to do with the biggest operating technology in the United States, 
the highway vehicle driver matrix. Even though it took, it was the fourth leading cause of death in the United States and the first leading cause of death for Princeton students. And there was zero research, learning, in any dimension, even metaphorically. Maybe they read Jack Kerouac. That's it. Now that, I never even was sensitive to that. I'd walk through the grounds during spring, and the groundskeepers have these huge uh, hoses showering the trees with DDT. And I remember uh, the students would go like this, wiping it. They never knew anything about what was being put on those trees. The only evidence that something was wrong was that at 5 or 6 in the morning, if you got up that early or if you stayed up that late, there were dead birds, dead birds near Firestone Library on the way to Wig Clyle, unmutilated dead birds. I took a couple of them down to the Daily Prince when I was a sophomore and had the misfortune of walking into a, a senior editor who had his feet on the desk. And I said, there's something wrong here. You know, every time there's the uh, application of this spray, as we called it, there'd be dead birds. And if the birds die, maybe it affects the students. And he leaned back with the complacency born of experience and looked at this underclassman and said, don't you understand that we have the smartest chemistry and biology professors in the country? And if there is anything wrong with those sprays, you wouldn't think, don't you think they'd, they'd say something? That was an extracurricular course I learned to treasure years later. You can have all the brains and all the knowledge, but if you don't have a normative impulse, or you simply don't want to get into a controversy, or you say it's not your field, you're too busy finishing your 15th publication, doesn't matter that you have these kinds of professors. Well, enough of that for an introduction. We have a presidential campaign underway, and something extremely strange is happening in politics today. And that is, for a variety of reasons, <clears throat> could be a fear, desperation, uh, expectation levels of people who should know better, the cognoscenti or the liberal intelligentsia, has never been lower. Two weeks ago, I got a statement uh, from some of the uh, well-known, uh, what should we call them, progressives, radicals, whatever, pamphleteers, and uh, they were urging uh, that people in the closed states should vote for Kerry. And what's interesting about that is that it preceded that urging with the statement, although we strongly disagree with Kerry on the war and other issues, quote. And then they proceeded not to make any demands on him. And indeed, that is characteristic of most of the constituency groups that are supporting Kerry, whether it's labor, minorities, anti-poverty, women's rights, consumer, environment. There are no demands. There are no pulls on the Democrats to go in the direction of the constituency 
without which they couldn't win any elections. But politics is never static. The pull on the Democrats is incessant by the corporate interests. They pull with temptation, money. They pull with providing consultants and advisors and experts that signal to the structure of power that the Democrats are okay. They're not going to they're not going to upset the situation in Washington and the trade association world. In fact, I don't know one trade association that's quaking the prospect of a Kerry Edwards victory, which is rather disturbing. And in other ways, they're there. They're always pulling. They're always pulling. They're always pulling. And if there's no pull in the other direction toward the necessities of the American people that have been avoided, ignored, or repressed for so many years in varying degrees by both parties, like endemic poverty, which afflicts about 40% of all U.S. households, not the U.S. Department of Labor criteria. That's absurd. A party of four, a family of four under the Department of Labor criteria of poverty is not poor if the family brings in $19,000 a year gross. But if you take the Economic Policy Institute's figure of $40,000 roughly or less, that's about 40% of the households. Now, you'd think pulling the Democrats in the direction of well-considered strategies against poverty, some of which were developed by conservative economists 30, 40, 50 years ago, one of which was proposed by Richard Nixon to Congress, the Minimum Incomes Plan, that that would get the attention of these people, some, many of whom don't even bother voting or being registered off the table. And the same is true in each one of these areas. What's most disturbing about it is that the, these groups don't have enough self-confidence in the agenda they're pushing to believe that it will, would get Kerry Edwards more votes. As a result, by not making Kerry better by their standards, they are allowing Kerry to be made less appealing to the voters by being pulled into the corporate matrix. And that's why the election is close. This should not be a close election. Daniel P. Moynihan, rather minted Democrat in 2000, said on more than one occasion the reason why the election between Gore and Bush was so close is that they were so much alike then. When someone like Daniel P. Moynihan makes that comment, he's not using two yardsticks. He's not using three yardsticks. He's not using a few issues. He's looking at the whole spectrum of similarity. Yet most people who are politically active only use one or two or three yardsticks. That's what their, their passion is. It's pro-choice. It's civil rights for African Americans. It's health insurance for Latinos. It's certain labor standards, getting rid of replacement strike breakers. When you do that, you lose perspective. <clears throat> and people who are very intolerant of competing campaigns, and we have never had more political bigotry than this year against a competing campaign, 
however modest, usually have one or two or three issues that they think are paramount. If the two parties rejected those issues, you'd have seven minor parties in a matter of weeks. If both parties were adamantly against choice, does anybody doubt that the constituency for choice would start a new party? In 1990, the head of now wanted to start a new party regardless. She was so upset with the situation. And the same is true as if uh, both parties were, uh, were for gun control. You think the NRA, which just endorsed Bush, would not start a third party? Take your own special issues that you think the Democrats are congenial with or the Republicans are congenial toward. And just assume both parties were adamantly against. You might have other ideas about giving voters more voices and choices. Well, we've been working on over 30 issues, internationally and nationally, and they've both been shut out. All of them have been shut out, with the most modest exceptions, by both parties. What's happened in Washington is a lack of recognition by people around the country that if you don't poll, there's no such thing as a static system. If justice goes on vacation, the forces of injustice do not. They're always working their will. As Frederick Douglass once said, the great abolitionist, power concedes nothing without a demand. And if there's not a demand, power becomes more entrenched and more insinuating, indeed more sophisticated, and less visible. <laughs> this is what we're seeing now in Washington. The way to measure the differences between the two parties is first not even to discuss them. It's to ask oneself, what are the differences between the two parties and the necessities of the American people and the world? That's the big difference. Or what's the difference between the two parties and another party or another candidacy that's offering a different platform before you get into the differences between Republicans and Democrats? My preferred way of analyzing the difference between the Democrats and Republicans, beyond noting that they're dialing for the same dollars, this is not something old. This started about 1979. 1980, when Tony Coelho, the congressman from California, who was in charge of the House campaign, the Finance Committee for the Democrats, convinced the Democrats they could raise as much money from business interests as the Republicans. Up until then, it was a heavier tilt toward labor. Certainly not an overt menu of daily fundraisers around the country and in Washington, D.C., and the consistency now of corporations and corporate interests and corporate PACs and corporate executives playing both sides of the aisle and basically saying, we can't lose. We may give more to some candidates than others, but basically we're going to have access and we're going to have influence. And the FEC data documents that. But there's, there's a better way to see the difference. 
Eisenhower, in his famous speech, uh, the Cross of Iron speech in April 1953, after he became president, a speech that no other president has given since. That's a sign, by the way. No other president. He started out saying, look, the U.S. can destroy the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union can destroy the U.S. But is this the way we want to live? He then started listing the cost of another aircraft carrier, destroyer, bomber, tank, and he translated those price, those dollars into schools, feeding hungry children, mass transit, housing, and so on. And then at the end he said, we should, we should address the needs of the world, not the fears of the world. And in 1960 he, he gave us the famous phrase, warning us, about the military-industrial conflict complex. Now that military-industrial complex has been growing and growing and growing, impervious to the collapse of the Soviet Union, impervious to the transformation of communist China under both administrations, Democrat, Republican, Democrat, Republican. The Department of Defense and the circle of Lockheed Martin and Boeing and General Dynamics and all the rest of them and their consulting firms displays the same pattern under both parties. They put the executives from the weapons manufacturers or consulting firms into high positions of the Pentagon. They ply their trade on Capitol Hill and pour money into the House Armed Service, Senate Armed Service Committees and they get more and more budgets for more and more weapon systems that have no strategic value, that are criticized inside OSD, or the Office of Secretary of Defense, that are severely challenged by some retired generals and admirals who are free to speak out. It doesn't matter. And now we have reached the state where no major enemy left in the world, let's not talk about a criminal gang being a major enemy in the world, and maybe an inventory for George W. Bush's re-election, or excuse me, election campaign. <laughs> but the budget, the Pentagon budget itself, <laughs> the Pentagon budget itself now is 50% of the entire federal government's operating expenditures. That's setting aside Social Security, et cetera, the social insurance. Just think of that. All the functions that the federal government performs. Fifty cents out of every dollar goes to the military budget. Now, the interesting thing about this fact, and it's growing, is that you could go to the ceiling here in Makash with the reports by the General Accounting Office over the last 25 years, tearing apart the fraud, the redundancy, the waste, the cost overruns, and the strategic uselessness of weapon systems, troop deployments, and bureaucracies, and overlaps, and inter-service rivalries. Nothing happens. Just get, just gets worse. The General Accounting Office a few years ago wanted to drive its point home. By the way, how many people ever read here the General Accounting Office reports? They're among the most underread necessary reading in our government. Let me see the hands again. Well, they're all online, so you have no excuse. 
Look them up. They have great reports on EPA, OSHA. I mean, it's the, uh, it's the arm that monitors for Congress the federal executive branch. And it isn't just an accounting analysis. It's basically oversight. It's what Congress used to do more of with its committees, like the Kefauver Committee on Antitrust, Senate Antitrust Committee. Anyway, the General Accounting Office declared the Pentagon budget unauditable. Let me say it again. Half of the federal government's expenditures are unauditable. And it was a one-day story. There are times when power reaches such an overwhelming level that those, when exposed to its description, are numb to it. Numb to it. I could, for example, gender a gender slur and an ethnic slur. You'd be up the wall. But if I told you that the Institute of Medicine very conservative arm of the National Academy of Sciences, estimates 18,000 Americans die every year because they can't afford health care. And hundreds of thousands become sick, stay sick, or get sicker because they can't have health care. How upset do you get? I'm going to make this point, but only a few more examples. 58,000 Americans die every year from worker-related diseases and trauma. Keep in mind the 3,000 on September 11th massacre. 58,000. The that's OSHA figures. The Harvard School of Public Health Physician Study estimates 80,000 people die every year just in hospitals from medical incompetence, not from medical errors. That adds another 100,000, 80,000. Pick your study. 65,000 people die from air pollution every year. 200,000 black kids and Hispanic kids are poisoned in the ghettos because of lead-based paint peeling off their crumbling apartment walls that in their innocence they pick at and devour. Asthma levels for poor children have doubled in the last 20 years. In some inner-city areas, they're 40%. The mere freedom to breathe is not a political issue. 13 million children go to sleep hungry every day. It's real hunger. It's real poverty. Professor Robert Felmuth, University of San Diego Law School, the leading children's advocate in California, I think in a nation, writes that 46% of all the children in California are in two categories, poverty, near poverty. That means very often physical infirmities, blasted opportunities, growing up in miserable, brutal conditions, helicopters, police cars, crime, drugs, bullet holes through windows, drive-through shootings, crumbling schools, clinics, very under-equipped if they can even use them. Any increase in bodily temperature here? We're numb to it. We're numb to it. 
And part of it is that you're not going to be exposed to a lot of these things. You're going to slice yourself into the upper income, preferred, and privileged classes just by the fact that you're here. Just by the fact that you're here. Right now, you're in the top 1% or 2% of people your age in the world in terms of your health, your education, and your ability to make a difference because of the country you live in and its power. Not to mention its enabling constitution. People your age now are looking for their next meal, doubled over with 23 inches of worm in their gut, worrying about being bludgeoned. It would, it would seem to induce a level of sensitivity, but it doesn't for the most part. It's too abstract. The, the phrase is pitiless abstractions. And the reason why the liberals and the liberal intelligentsia can behave the way they're behaving, the, the mantra is anybody but Bush, leave Kerry alone, don't make any demands on him, is because they are surrounded by these pitiless abstractions. And they can't emphasize enough. And their expectation levels are too low. And they've lost even their self-respect. To think that the corporate Democrats can go around Washington and say, it doesn't matter what the people who share the nation's philosophy or progressive philosophy or Washington Monthly or Harper's. These people don't matter because we got them cornered. They have nowhere to go. Either stay home or they're going to vote for us. And that's why John Kerry has been free to engage in protective imitation with George W. Bush. And that's why he has me-tooed George W. Bush on so many issues, like the military budget. He doesn't speak of cracking down on corporate crime, even though he knows better. I spoke to him about it. We've discussed it. You would think that that's a vote-getting issue. The corporate crime wave in the last five years has looted and drained trillions of dollars from small investors, pensions, 401ks, and workers. And it's not an issue in the campaign. Corporate welfare. He made a statement a few months ago, which led me to have a meeting with him. He said, I'm going to end corporate welfare as we know it. Exact words. So I put on his desk ten programs of the most extreme kinds of corporate subsidies and handouts to the mining industry, to the energy industry, to the drug industry. Something he knows. Nobody has to show him. It's not an issue. It's only hundreds of billions of dollars. It's only a huge drain of revenues that can be used with more compelling results at the community level all over the country, creating good jobs that can't be exported, repairing the whole public works and infrastructure and expanding it and modernizing it. It's not a minor issue. It's been documented repeatedly in the business press. On Iraq, they squabble over how Bush got into it properly. Uh, they squabble over tactics. 
But in the first debate, they began to converge, as William Satire crowed in a column nine days ago. He welcomed John Kerry to the ranks of the neocoms. He said that he was he outhawked, warhawked Bush. And if you look at his words, it was press on, put in more troops if necessary, toward victory. And that mention of Fallujah was basically going to get those ten cities. He knows the slaughter that that's going to involve. He asked when he came back from Vietnam, you'd think he'd learned the lesson of a quagmire. He asked the senators in his celebrated statement, how do you ask the last man to die for a mistake, meaning the last American soldier? But he's not asking the question, how do you ask the next thousand American soldiers to die for a mistake? How do you ask the next 50,000 Iraqis to die for a mistake? Because he knows that George W. Bush plunged us into this war, unconstitutionally authorized, by the way. Article 1, Section 8 is not a technicality, but it appears to be for the last umpteen years in Washington, D.C. The last war the government, Congress declared, was on poverty. He knows that Bush didn't square with the American people. Bush knew what he didn't know. You can at least establish that. People can say he lied. People can say the war was, on, was plunged into on a platform of fabrications, deceptions, cover-ups, repudiation of his own advisors in some parts of the government, like the State Department and the U.S. Army and the Pentagon, rejection of even meeting with former diplomatic intelligence and military retirees who wanted to meet with them who were against the war. Might be the only war we ever got in that was against that establishment's better judgment. But he clearly knew what he didn't know. And you've known it, you've seen it now, no, no weapons of mass destruction. Al-Qaeda ties non-existent, they're mortal enemies. One is secular, the other is fundamental. As far as Saddam Hussein, who was our brutal dictator from 1979 to 1990, because he was anti-communist and slaughtered them on demand, and he was a useful buffer against Iran, that he wasn't a threat to anyone but his own people, for which he certainly was a threat. He was a tottering dictator presiding over a dilapidated army, unwilling to fight for him, surrounded by countries that would obliterate him if he made one false move, namely Israel, Turkey, and Iran. And so, what does John Kerry do in the first debate? He basically engages in protective imitation. He takes it off the table by saying he's going to pursue the war better to victory, what he said. Occupation produces resistance. When you have a double occupation, it produces double resistance. You have a military occupation and an oil company from Texas occupation of their resources, the oil fields, the third richest in the world. Where we're heading now, and some of you maybe end up in Iraq, just like when I was your age, some, some of my classmates, uh, older classmates, 
ended up in Korea. We're heading for a puppet dictatorship backed by the U.S. military on the ground against a spreading rebellion. It will ebb and flow, or it could become a flashpoint in other countries. But the Iraqis are like everyone else. They will continue to fight until the occupation is over. And it's going to be bloody. And there'll be the usual Vietnam syndromes. Things are getting better. We're quelling them. We're training military forces just the way they did with the South Vietnamese army. And then the government has to address the shortage of manpower. The troops are spread so thin, 40% of the troops in Iraq are reservists and guardsmen. Where are they going to get the troops? They're either going to have to privatize more and more military jobs to the Halliburtons of the world, or they're going to have to go for a draft. Young people today have a lot of worries. I've talked with them around the country. High tuition hikes at public universities, 15, 20 percent a year. They're worried about the draft. They're worried about their jobs being outsourced, no matter how specialized they are. They're worried about not having health insurance when they graduate and come out from under their parents' umbrella, or companies are offering less and less health insurance coverage, and the ones that do, more co-payments, exclusions, and deductions. And nobody's really addressing their, their concerns in any specific way, partly because your age group only comes out 30% or so. The vote turnout is only about 30%. When we were fighting for the 18-year-old vote, none of us ever dreamed that. Now we're supporting the 16-year-old vote, hope springs eternal. Since 16-year-olds can work and pay taxes, they should be able to vote. Let's very briefly look at the issues that are off the table. Off the table is a failed war on drugs. They don't like to discuss it. How many people here smoke pot? Come on. Come on, don't be inhibited. Come on. You're a lot different from other universities. Well, I always wanted that. I mean, you think these, these people should be prosecuted and sent to jail? I mean, do we send alcoholics to jail? Do we send nicotine addicts to jail? This is medievalism. Addiction should be subjected to love, kindness, rehabilitation. It's a health problem. The enforcement areas are on the edge of the problem. Not to turn nonviolent drug addicts into 800,000 prisoners at $40,000 a year. This is crazy. Liberals and conservatives, from William F. Buckley to the mayor, former mayor of uh, Baltimore, Mayor Schmoke, uh, people of great attainments, think it is a disaster. It's $50 billion a year. That could give a free tuition to every public university student for about a year and three months, if you want to transfer that. And Plan Columbia and defoliation, it's crazy. Not even discussed off the table. 
Off the table were the ones I just mentioned, just for sequence. Off the table, corporate welfare. Off the table, corporate crime. Off the table, the hundreds of billions of dollars drained from consumers because of very sophisticated fraud and billing abuse and charges and penalties and shoddy merchandise and deceptive advertising and auto repair rackets and all the problems that that low-income consumers have to absorb in the ghettos, the rent-to-own rackets, the payday loans at 400% interest or more, where there's no law enforcement, predatory lending, redlining, crumbling tenements, violating building codes that aren't enforced. These are primarily democratic cities, by the way. We should always remember. These are democratically run cities. And they can't even protect against the most vicious type of consumer exploitation, these poor people who don't have enough to begin with. Off the table is not discussed is solar energy. I mean, doesn't John Kerry believe in solar energy? Yes, he does. Why doesn't he make it a big issue? He's facing a, a Bush administration marinated in oil. It makes a nice contrast. <laughs> there are all kinds of pilot projects, passive solar, solar thermal, solar photovoltaic. The prices are dropping. Today's Wall Street Journal has wind power is the energy of choice for generating electricity. He knows that. What is it about our politics that we cannot contrast a planetary, planetary saving pattern of technology against a president who is extremely insensitive, ignorant, and anti-environmental, and would never turn his back on his Texas buddies. I mean, it's a perfect contrast. We're not getting it. The criminal injustice system, off the table. They're both for the death penalty, although uh, Bush is more indiscriminate in that. But the criminal injustice system is, in a way, a real scar on our law schools. I mean, shame on them. I mean, the level of discrimination and prosecutorial discretion against Latinos and African Americans is staggering. Two teenagers, one white, one black. Clean record, first offense. The black teenager has a five-fold increase of being sent to jail. Three strikes and you're out in California. That means if you steal three bicycles and are convicted for each one, the third time you're in for 30 years. 30 years? 30 years when the worst corporate crooks who have smogged cities, who have poisoned drinking water systems, who have choked people in places like Anniston, Alabama, who have destroyed whole cities like Anaconda and Butte, Montana, never even tiptoe to the courtroom, followed by a prosecutor. You would think that would be a major subject. Affects a lot of people. A lot of people. One uh, is almost tempted to go a little deeper into this, but the criminal courts are really an abomination. And the juvenile courts are an abomination. But they're out of sight for people who live in the shrubbered suburbs. Off the table, of course, is a military budget. 
I never thought I'd see a day when a Democratic Party and presidential candidate would not challenge one or two weapon systems that aren't needed. When they can get all kinds of generals and admirals and retired weapon specialists as their expert witnesses. Off the table. Off the table is a vision of the world and what we mean to the world in terms of a foreign policy that redefines national security to include a massive assault on global infectious diseases, a massive conversion of sustainable technologies in place of the omnicidal technologies that we are getting away with only because most of the people in the world don't have the same level of per capita consumption. Wait until most people in the world have two cars with the eternal internal combustion engine. Wait until they consume the same amount of paper from trees. Wait until they, they consume uh, the same amount of pesticides and herbicides. If we don't change it, 15,000 plus days, the forces destroying our oceans and tropical forests are going to be irreversible. Already, there are moratoriums on fishery species all up and down Newfoundland, New England coast because, for example, cod was very precipitous in terms of a death dive and they stopped fishing. The harvest of fisheries in the world is declining in the last five or ten years. The vision of the world is important for your generation. Why, John F. Kennedy just proposed the Peace Corps, and he excited people who were your age then, just to appeal to their idealism. We have so much to give to the world that we shouldn't allow the world to see us only giving deadly weapons of rapid and mass destruction. The biggest exporters in the, in the world are the United States, financed and subsidized by your tax dollars. We're not talking about Pentagon sales. We're talking about what are called redundant sales, collateral sales by the Lockheed Martins of F-16s and helicopters and so forth, subsidized by taxpayer money, as Senator Hatfield used to point out every year, Republican from Oregon. Israel-Palestine. Off the table. Oh, what a touchy subject. It's as if we don't have a national interest in resolving that conflict. And if we had a national interest in resolving that conflict, which is no longer a local conflict, it has serious flashpoints around the world, we would not be a rubber stamp for whatever policy comes out of the Israeli government. We would... Our government is not connecting with the broad and deep Israeli peace movement, which recently put 120,000 people in a square in Tel Aviv protesting Sharon's policies toward the Palestinians. In very graphic terms, I might add. They used strong language. And the Israeli peace movement is now, among its leadership, mayors, members of the Knesset, rabbis for justice, human rights leaders, former generals, former fighter pilots, four of the most recent chiefs of the intelligence services in the government of Israel. Not a marginalized group of people who know that a two-state solution is a way to resolve the problem, who have been working with their Palestinian counterparts for years 
trying to develop accords. Even Ehud Barak in Chicago in June, former prime minister, said to the assemblage, Israel must begin disengaging from the West Bank and Gaza and not wait, quote, for the right Palestinian authority, end quote. Meaning that Israel's military preponderance is so massive that it can do what it wants to do if it wants to disengage. Well, he was a Camp David, and that myth needs to be dispelled. That offer was never put in writing, by the way. You don't engage in diplomatic negotiation with the President of the United States between you and not put the offer in writing. But what was proposed orally and filtered through Clinton had a Palestinian state with anywhere from 5 or 10% less land. And, you know, it's what kind of land? Imagine the U.S. with 5 or 10% less land, say, starting with uh, New York City. And, you know, it's not just a numbers issue. But a Palestinian state that did not control its own air, water, and boundaries, there's no viable state there at all. And it wouldn't even have gotten through the Knesset. Even the pull out from Gaza may not get through the Knesset in terms of the rebellion that's occurring now in Sharon's own party. But what is most disturbing is there is far more freedom in Israel to discuss the pros and cons and to criticize than there is in the U.S. government. And we have the spectacle of the Israeli prime minister visiting the president and then going down to Congress and getting what he wants, plus a lot of aid, and then he flies back and he lands in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem, and he's confronted by a barrage of criticism. Opposing parties, human rights groups, you know, Haaretz newspaper, and so on. So it is worthy of debate here. I don't think the Democrats and Republicans are doing the American people, the Israeli people, or the Palestinian people any favors here by knuckling under and not thinking for themselves. And it's not going to change unless there's a more vigorous, exogenous debate imposed on those two parties. Right now, I don't think they mentioned it in the last three debates. There was no discussion because the questioner said, why discuss it? They're on the same page. There's no disagreement. Enough said of what's off the table. But let's ask about ourselves in conclusion. I've just put out a little book called uh, The Good Fight. And in the appendix, there are a few pages, How to Become a Super Voter. I neglected to make the comparison with the voter as voter and the voter as sports fans. But sports fans are very rigorous and diligent. They do their homework. They know the strategies, the statistics, the player's record, the team's record, how good it is on offense, how good it is on defense. And they assign responsibilities, don't they, to umpires, players, managers, etc., all the way up to the owners. But when they become voters, it's like there's no need to study. You're either hereditary Democrat, hereditary Republican, or you sort of move on a hunch, or you are uh, clued in on one or two issues you feel deeply about, and you select your candidate. That is a perfect way to become a prisoner of your favorite candidate. The more issues you evaluate a candidate on, the more the balance of power tilts in your favor against the candidate. 
But if you're a one-issue candidate, if you come up to a Republican and say, I don't want any gun control, I'm a charter member of the NRA, and a Republican say, we're your people, nothing else matters. So the Republicans get a free ride on all kinds of other issues from this individual, who, who may actually believe in a living wage, who may actually believe that, that she wants her kids growing up breathing clean air and clean water, who may actually believe that there needs to be a decent public transit system in the country, who may actually believe that laws facilitating unions should be replacing laws that obstruct unions. The Democrats, unfortunately, look at these people and they say, are they against abortion? Are they against gun control? If the answer is a yes, they write them off. One of the reasons why they've been losing. But as I mentioned to John Kerry a few months ago, I asked him a question. I said, if the Republicans are so bad and they're worse, if they're so bad as you say they are and they're worse, why are the Democrats losing and losing and losing in the last 10 years to the lo at the local, state, and national level, even losing an election in 2000, they actually won. And his answer symbolized the problem of the party. He said, quote, because the Republicans have so much money, they cloud the issues, end quote. Not good enough. It's the agenda. It's getting down in the neighborhoods, in the communities, and organized. It's actively registering 9 million African-American voters this year that they're not actively registering with a few minor forays, 90% of whom would vote for the Democrats and swing some of the swing states like Ohio and Pennsylvania. It's standing up for the people rather than knuckling under for corporations. How to be a super voter. I got a couple letters from young people a year ago. One was a, 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 a waitress in uh, Tallahassee. Another was a graduate of Princeton. He had just graduated in aerospace and civil engineering or something like that, whatever the department was. He had written a prize-winning thesis on porous metals and he'd been offered a high-paying job by Ford Motor Company, and he writes me a letter. And I sat there and I read that letter four times. And it inspired me to write a little book responding to her letter and the Princeton student's letter. It's called Civic Arousal. just came out. And I responded to him because of the nuance of the letters, the hidden idealism, the overt idealism, the doubt, the skepticism, the resignation, the, the wonderment, the what's happening to us, uh, the uh, pox on all your houses as politicians, says the, says the waitress in so many words. There just isn't enough dialogue, enough conversation, too much time watching screens. I mean, before you reach your 30s, you're going to have a little computer half embedded in your brain. It certainly will be around your ear. 
and very light indeed. It's already here. Watching screens does something to the brain. Sure, it gets instant information. You can confirm a lot of things without pouring through books. But the, the lack of human contact comes with a price. We, we see it with the children. Their f- vocabularies are shrunken. They now can get along on 210 words. You know, sort of, kind of. Cool, cool, kind of, sort of, you know. Believe me, whatever. <laughs> Who needs Esperanto, for heaven's sake? With this, their attention span shrinks, as many teachers will, will notice. They can't, they can't react to paragraphs. Part of it is television. You know, they're watching television 30, 40 hours a week. And think how many scenes change in a minute. I mean, you can't possibly count the scenes that change in MTV when you watch it. Let me know if anybody can. That's how fast they change. But take, take even a, a clip on the evening news and watch how many times a minute the scene changes. That's not natural. When you look at nature, you, you have time to look, and you digest, goes to the brain, you react. But television, boom, it's like that, constant. And it gets to be, you don't have any tolerance by the time you're 12 for any kind of, shall we say, excursus? <laughs> Some kind of conversation. Look at, the, look at the movies. There's no longer any suspense. It's instant action. Boom, 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 boom. Like that. Not like a French detective movie. And they go to school, and that, that exhibits itself the same way. So it's a pretty good, pretty good idea when you're at Princeton, is to keep asking the question, what, what is happening to us? What is happening to us? And not to exaggerate what it takes to make fundamental change. Oscar Wilde once said, socialism would never work because there are too many meetings. Well, that's almost true for any small-d democratic activity. But half of democracy is just showing up. It's just showing up in human terms, marches, rallies. People think these big anti-nuclear weapons marches were useless during the Reagan administration. No, no. They started looking at them. They were well-dressed Republicans marching down those streets. Nixon signed into law, EPA, OSHA, he signed into law all kinds of progressive legislation that we helped get through Congress, not because he believed in them, because he still heard the rumble of the people from the 60s. And he was afraid of the rumble of the people. And the rumble of people simply meant that a significant number of people showed up. They showed up at city council meetings. They showed up in court, sometimes dragged to court in handcuffs after civil disobedience. But they showed up. And so here at Princeton, my class is working on what's called experiential learning through Project 55. And uh, that, that project, by the way, came about because some of us were sick and tired of going back to reunions and wallowing in nostalgia with huge pitchers of beer, greasing our dimmed memory, and then going to meetings in halls like this and have the present Princeton kind of urge us to give more money to Princeton and not asking anything of our intelligence. So we organized Proj- Princeton Project 55, 
And we now place maybe 10% of juniors and seniors in summer and postgraduate civic action groups. These are going to be the new leaders of our country. I guarantee you within 30 years, there are going to be more civic leaders in our country by far from Princeton than from Yale and from Harvard, which are both bigger because of this sort of thing. And the nicest thing is when our class marches in the P-Rate, it gets the biggest applause from the graduating senior. Of course, that's easy because the, the class that precedes us is class of 54. It's one of the most boorish classes. <laughs> it spawned Donald Rumsfeld, by the way. Now, I don't want to hold you up from your classes and so on, but I do want to, I, I do, I do want to, I do want to suggest that take huge advantage of your time here. Don't get into routines. If you start knowing what, how are you going to spend a weekend, every weekend, every weekend is roughly the same, break it. Audit classes in addition to your required classes. Sample what there is of the intellectual life here. In fact, is there an intellectual life here beyond people in disciplines talking to each other within the discipline? How much interdisciplinary talk and mobilization and excitement? You will never have this kind of life, most of you, unless you go into the academic world. and It's another experience, but you just won't have it. You're not at the peak of your idealism, but you're near. You were more idealistic when you were 11 or 12. But look at the facilities here. When are you ever going to have gathering halls like this? You know how hard it is for people in neighborhoods just to find a place? The malls are private property, even though they're tax-subsidized. The, the labor union halls, what's left of them, hard to get in. You have your own gathering place. You have your own laboratories. When's the next time you're going to be able to test drinking water free for heavy metals? You have your own... Uh, faculty who are skilled advisors. You pay a heavy tuition, but they don't charge you a fee every time you ask them for technical advice. You have an ability to, to cross-fertilize your course requirements and your extracurricular work to get you more citizen skills. Just on a thesis, the thesis you write. The third-year paper I wrote in law school at Harvard was on unsafe automobiles and legal liability. I turned it into a book, Unsafe at Any Speed. And GM stumbled over it, fortunately. And two laws were passed in 1966, the Highway Safety and Motor Vehicle Safety Laws, which irregularly enforced have saved over a million lives and millions of injuries prevented and others diminished in severity. It's one of the excellent examples of technology-forcing law dramatically reducing death and injury on the highway. You're losing far fewer of your classmates than our generation lost. So take advantage of the senior thesis or the junior or the, or the junior paper. But above all, get rid of your ideological predispositions. They're mind closers. They're mind closers. Let me say it again. They're mind closers. Remember Alfred North Whitehead's famous phrase. What makes science science is, is leaving open options for revision. Options for revision. Don't be un, empirically undernourished 
which ideologues are, empirically undernourished. Some of them are empirically starved because they have a framework that's so fixed it's resistant to new evidence. And on this last point, you have a lot to give to this country. On the other hand, you're tempted. You're tempted by high status, that's yours, if you want it. You're tempted by lucrative professions and occupations and businesses. You're tempted by a way of life that insulates you from the horrid reality of the world, which is not doing very well. Half of the world is living on two or one dollars a day. Most of the world's tragedies and suffering are not being addressed by multinational corporations unless they want to worsen them, like the tobacco industry and the fossil fuel industry and the mining concession work with any dictatorship industry. So it's really easy to slide right through. And in a way, you're depriving this country and world of a great human resource. You're allowing yourself to be trivialized even though you may become very rich. And you have to learn how to resist it before you march in that parade on graduation day. And the way to do it is to attach yourself with a burning intensity and intellectual focus to a major injustice or a major social problem or a major unresolved opportunity that can improve the world. You may have ideas on what you're going to be facing better than people who are older. You, you may be more experienced and wise in your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Let's hope so. You may have better judgment. You will never have a more creative decade than your 20s. This is the decade where you're going to either make the breakthrough or not, where the vector is going to go one way or the other, where you're going to eschew the forces of trivialization that surround you every day and just watch your small talk as a syndrome of that, or you're going to break through and become among the great leaders in the world, leaders who define leadership as producing more leaders not more followers. I don't have to remind you that there are technologies today that could have great benefits and huge devastating effects. Nanotechnology. Biotechnology. They are moving forward in terms of their deployment in an engineering sense without any ethical, legal framework or any mode of understanding by most people. When the technology races ahead of the science that has to be its governing discipline, as is the case with biotechnology, just look at the problem of migration, lots of trouble happens. When the technology of the automobile placed millions and millions of automobiles on the highway, and it was, wasn't until Sixty years later, the Arlie Hagen-Schmidt at Caltech made the connection between the internal combustion engine and photochemical smog 
that was making air very unbreathable in Southern California. And look at the penalty that was paid because the technology got ahead of the science. Who's going to lead here? Who is going to take upon yourself the connection of values, knowledge, and action? You have to resist temptation. Unlike Oscar Wilde, who, who, as you know, made that famous statement, I can resist everything but temptation. And in resisting temptation, it's worthwhile to recall a few epigrams. Cicero, definition of freedom. Quote, freedom is participation in power. End quote. By that definition, how much freedom do people have? Eric Fromm, the psychologist at Yale, made that neat distinction. Freedom from police brutality, oppression, and freedom to. Freedom to is what's implied in Cicero's definition over 2,000 years ago. The ancient Chinese maxim, to say and not to do is not to say. That would be a pretty good application for understanding today's politicians. To say and not to do is not to say. And then, of course, there's Eugene Debs, that very underrated great labor leader in the early 20th century, who said once, I'd rather vote for a candidate who I believe in and loses than vote for a candidate I don't believe in who wins. What did he mean by that? He was looking back history. He was looking back at 19th century America when those little parties that never won an election, never won a national election, spearheaded and associated with other allied movements, the drive against slavery, the drive for women's right to vote, drive to give workers fair labor standards, 40-hour week, right to form trade unions, the graduated income tax, and, of course, the greatest political reform movement in our history, that started in 1887 in East Texas, the farmer populist progressive movement over the next 25 years. There are enough people who never voted for the least worst between the Democrats and the Whigs or the Democrats and the Republicans. They voted for those small parties. They voted for those small parties because they knew that every social adjustment ever, social justice movement, loses and fights and loses and fights and loses until their agenda for a better life is adopted, sometimes not by themselves, but by one or the other of the major parties. So I welcome you to the land of the losers, because as I.F. Stone once said, the only social justice movements worth fighting for are those where you first lose, and you lose, and you lose, until you win. Thank you.
All right, if everybody Thank could please much. sit down. Um, if people on the in the top in the balcony want, want would like to ask a question, we'd like you to come down, and um, two of us will be here to take questions. We have a few minutes for questions if anybody is interested. Uh, hi, Mr. Nader. I really enjoyed your speech. Thank you very much for coming. And uh, I'd like to ask your opinion on the situation in Afghanistan currently and the recent elections there. Well, uh, actually, I have a friend, a uh, Stanford student, who's over there with his father, who's in charge of uh, trying to get some financial recovery uh, in the in the government there. Well, 98 percent of the countries controlled by, effectively controlled by warlords and there is no clear direction that that country is going to be stabilized. It was given 41 million dollars in early 2001 by the U.S. government to the Taliban in reward for their eradicating the opium trade and uh, they now are the biggest narco state uh, production uh, country in the world because that's all they have. So I'm not, I'm not as uh, optimistic about Afghanistan as President Bush is. Uh, it's very, very hard given the tribal rivalries and the interference from foreign powers to expect much stability there. I wouldn't want to predict stability. The Christian right has made a very concerted effort um, in the last decade, two decades, to take over the Republican Party, to uh, take office on a local level. Um, they've certainly been working uh, within the Bush administration to gut serious science. Um, and I wondered if you could talk about them as a force in American political life. Well, they are a force, and they're a lesson to the liberals who seem to have lost their energy to take over the corporate Democratic Party at the precinct level. The Christian right started at the precinct level. I mean, they just showed up. You know how few people show up at, <laughs> at the local party meetings. They, they think it's a good thing in a town of 20,000 if seven people show up uh, at any given evening. And uh, they did it very deliberately. And uh, they basically had a platform uh, that reflected their religious commitments, and it was a uh, a conditional platform. It was, if you don't adopt this, at least verbally, uh, we're not going to support you, and we're going to fight you. And uh, that had a huge impact, but verbally. And if you want an exhibit, log into the Texas State Republican Party platform of 2002, and you will see that it has 25 positions or more against the Bush administration policies. This is Bush's own state party. Now, how did this happen? Because the corporate Republicans, in order to get the conservative Republicans and evangelical Christian core, give them the platform. They say, you write it. And it doesn't mean anything. And George W. Bush was asked once, what about this, your own platform? He said, well, you know, that's for us to choose or not to choose to abide by. But uh, I put it in a letter to actually the president to try to say, what's your response? And it's on our website, votenator.org, along with a whole agenda inquiry 
for the common good, about 25 subjects that we submitted in the interests of a deeper presidential campaign uh, to the Republican Democratic parties in late October. That's also on the website, votenator.org. Now, what, what does this teach the, the progressives or whatever they want to call themselves? Because the, the Democratic Party is definitely uh, tilted in the direction of the Democratic Leadership Council, the DLC, and, and, uh, and the corporate uh, uh, takeover of the party. I just see they seem to have run out of gas. There is no mass movement in the Democratic Party. Labor, no mass movement labor, no mass movement minorities. I keep asking myself, when are the poor going to be heard from? When are they going to be heard from? When are they going to start to mass and rally and march and generate new leaders? Most of the leaders of the mass movements of 30, 40 years ago were not replaced. And uh, this is a big problem for anybody who is a Saul Alinsky-type analyst. Uh, try to cut your teeth on that. How do you get tens of millions of people who have common perceived grievances to go to the next step and mobilize politically. Yes. Mr. Nader. Oh, I'm sorry. We're going to go with the PA. Where is it? Right here. Mr. Nader, back here. Oh, okay. You are clearly a man of, uh, of principle, as evidenced by your tireless consumer advocacy over the years. That's benefited millions of Americans. Um, however, to use a phrase of, of your own, reality is not a pitiless abstraction. And the reality of the current political climate is that you are not going to win this election. You stated yourself uh, that you don't plan or intend or think it's even possible for you to win a single state in the United States of America. You've also stated uh, publicly that... Um, you know, even though that you don't like the way things are now, you would rather anybody but Bush be in the White House the next election. I have to ask then, given this reality and given the poll numbers that indicate that were you not running, more people would be voting for John Kerry and Bush would have a greater likelihood of not getting reelected. How can you, based on your principles, continue to run in this election when you know, and it's evidenced by poll numbers, that your presence in this race increases the likelihood that George Bush will get reelected? Well, first of all... Uh First of all, I've got to tell you a little story. Uh, Norman Thomas came to speak here in 1954. He was a graduate of Princeton. He ran for president five times on the Socialist Party ticket. I walked him back to his hotel, the Princeton Inn at the time, and I asked him what he thought his greatest contribution was. And he, he said, having the Democratic Party steal my agenda. So that's in the two-party rigged system. And it's rigged from ballot access to exclusion from debates and everything in between, winner-take-all, no runoff voting, you know. Uh, the function of an effort like this is to keep the agenda before the public, before the two parties, reach out to young people who are going to become the next leaders to implement the agenda, and try to give the Democrats, in your case, uh, a little perspective. The Democrats are so decadent that instead of trying to scramble for 100 million non-voters this year, instead of actively registering millions of African Americans and Latinos, they're worried about this effort? They keep saying, you're not even going to get 2 million votes. And I keep saying, what are you worrying about? Zogby now tells me, the Zogby poll now tells me that as of late August, my voters, or Peter Cameo and my voters, 
50% of them would never have voted, and the rest split 50-50 Democrat-Republican. In New Hampshire, actually take more Republican votes. In some states, it may tilt a little bit in the other way. But look at the proportionality here. What is it about a party that has umpteen number of voters waiting for them if they had any authentic way to make the party meaningful to these people, like 47 million people who make under 10 bucks an hour and have a frozen minimum wage that they can't support one person on, and they're, they're spending millions of dollars trying to keep us off the ballot, which is not just a denial of our civil liberties. It's telling millions of voters that they're not going to have an opportunity to vote for the Nader Camejo ticket. Uh, and I might add for your amusement, one of the law firms that the Democrats have hired uh, in Ohio is Kirkland Ellis, which was Ken Starr's law firm. Yes. Uh, sorry. Oh, okay. Thanks. Okay. Um, I had a question regarding your comment about bi um, biotechnology and nanotechnology, actually. And you're saying that um, that research being conducted without any legal um, framework. And so I was wondering about how you feel about stem cell research and cloning technology and how you feel about the Bush administration's restrictions concerning that line of research? Well, I just, uh, this is not an area I've delved into. Um, if you want a more contoured approach rather than either or, uh, the Council for Responsible Genetics in Cambridge, which is started by Harvard and MIT scientists, uh, has a, a level of proportionality to it. They think that it is necessary to do in some dimensions, in others, in the hands of commercial promoters, like corporate science, it can lead to serious ethical and legal problems. The discussion of stem cell research is entirely uh, excised from what commercial corporatism will do to it. And corporate science is not academic science. Corporate science is not peer-reviewed very well. Corporate science is secret, proprietary information. Corporate science is associated with a lot of political power in Washington, such as Monsanto's lobbyists. So at least the discussion has to take into account not just the moral, religious, embryo, all the considerations of the Christian right and so on, but what does this research in the hands of corporations do to the pros and cons of the subject. The Supreme Court now, for example, has ruled that corporations can patent life forms. That's the 1980 decision. Up to what level? Well, if you read the decision, it could go right up to the level of a humanoid. So we're not, you know. Again, this binary approach is not very good in this subject. Hello. Mr. Nader, you say that you are against the current corporate culture in America, but the campaign you are using to fight it is not free. In fact, it is well documented that some of your biggest donors to your campaign are the Republican corporate criminals who hope to bolster the president's chances for re-election. How can you say that you will fight against these corporate criminals when you don't have the principle to refuse to accept their donations? Because... 
the predicate is false. The Center for Responsive Politics, the Center, first of all, we take no commercial money, unlike the other two parties. We take no PAC money, unlike the other two parties. So that removes a huge area of your concern. We take individual donations. Individual donations, according to the Center for Responsive Politics, 4% of our donors came from people who contribute to Bush, contribute to Nader Cameo, and actually contributed more to the Democrats. Pretty soon, there's going to be a report out showing thousands of times more Republican money going into the Democratic coffers. So we're not taking commercial money, PAC money. A lot of the donors that gave to Bush and gave to us are people who are classmates at Harvard, who I've worked with on corporate governance, or a fast food magnate who I worked with on the Mesabi Iron Range and the pollution battles years ago. <clears throat> Not one contribution has a quid pro quo. They come entirely from individuals. Entirely from individuals. Yes. Let's see. There was no... Sorry. I was here. Um, I just wanted to respond to that. Um, just kind of a follow-up to, I think it was my friend Pablo over there made that question. Um, five of the donors who have donated the maximum individual amount, $2,000 to your campaign. Oh, sorry, no, not all of them have donated the amount. But between the five of them, they've donated $13,500. And these are all major donors to the Swift Boat Veterans for Truth campaign. And when that was going around, you, you called it pretty deplorable that Bush, through his proxies, is doing this smear. And these are the same guys that donated to that group and have donated to, to your campaign. And um, I wonder why you would accept that money from these guys. If you're going to clean up Washington, why are you accepting money from some of the dirtiest political operatives out there? Thanks. Well, first of all, I've been on the road for two weeks. And when I get back to Washington, I want to verify that because I'm not going to reply on, rely on press reports. Uh, second of all, okay. no strings attached to any contributors. So I, I, would you give a political litmus paper test to these people if there's no political strings attached? Let me give you an example. Suppose someone contributes to me, or it's a Peter Camille, and it turns out he's a wife abuser. It turns out uh, someone did something uh, criminally dodged a draft. Do you realize what you have to go through to check everybody's background? The point is that these contributions, as they come in, they're overwhelmingly from Democrats and independents, overwhelmingly. When they come in, they don't flag themselves that way. They have no quid pro quo whatsoever. We're trying to get Republican votes. I want it. 25% of our votes in 2000, according to exit polls, were Republican. Most liberals don't understand that there are a whole series of issues that conservatives are furious with Bush about. The Patriot Act, big government snooping, they hate it. They hate the sovereignty shredding impact WTO and NAFTA. They don't like Bush coddling communist China and beating up on Taiwan. They don't like their dollars going to corporate subsidies like the recent bills and the drug benefit bill and the energy uh, bill. They don't like federal regulation of local school districts who leave, leave no child behind. We're talking to these people, and we want their votes. And if they want to contribute, fine, as individuals. So we're not going to give them a litmus paper test. 
We think the Democrats are making a foolish mistake not trying to spin off a few million of these voters just the way Reagan spun off the blue-collar so-called Reagan Democrats. You remember uh, in the, uh, when he became president in the 80s, many of whom have not returned to the Democratic fold. So we want to get, we are appealing to independents, conservatives, liberal Republicans, as well as Democrats. That's very important to point out because there are so many predispositions about someone who, say, is often viewed as associated with progressive causes. Uh, I, uh, I see a potential unity forming on about 10 major issues between conservatives and liberals. And corporate welfare is one of them. And that is no small item. And the assault on civil liberties is another, like the Patriot Act. So I, don't, I want to work that unity. Uh, I'm sorry, there's no more time for questions. So Thank you very much. Remember, there'll be a, Mr. Nader will be available at the Triumph uh, right uh, immediately following. Thank you. Thank you. We'll go out this way.